Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilley with you. It is Thursday, the 3rd of March. And in this episode, we're going to bring you the story of a Brisbane woman called Beck, who wishes she never heard this message from the Queensland Premier on Saturday afternoon. I know this is of concern to many people who have experienced 2011. Please, there is no concern for alarm. No concern for alarm. So Beck hears that, and then this happens. On Saturday afternoon at about 3.30, they said, we are not concerned about the Brisbane River. And I took that downstairs to my father-in-law and said, look, they're saying it's fine, don't stress, don't worry. And woke up to someone drowning on my street. And her house being absolutely devastated by the floods. So she's furious at the Premier. We're going to hear her story and ask, what's going on with flood management in Australia? How did that happen? Why were thousands of people in Lismore, for example, left stranded? And thousands more in Brisbane flooded again. When it comes to bushfires, we've learned some tough lessons on how to keep ourselves safe. But we seem to be way behind on floods. First, today's headlines with Jamfran. Yeah, g'day, mate. We're starting with the East Coast floods today, and tens of thousands of people in Sydney's southwest and northwest have had to evacuate overnight. This is after flood warnings were issued for the Hawkesbury Nepean and also the Georges Rivers. Yeah, some people were given less than an hour to leave their homes and dozens of communities got the notice as late as 11 o'clock last night. Around 40 people have been rescued by the SCS so far in the last 24 hours. Yeah, so what we know is rainfall totals have hit more than 150 millimetres in some parts of Sydney um, in 24 hours with warnings that these floods could be higher than the event last March and that the worst is actually still yet to come. So Ryan Clarkson from the SES says that the East Coast low is only really going to hit the coast this morning, depending on what time you're listening to this, you might be in the thick of it. We're expecting it to make landfall sometime this morning uh, in between Sydney and Hunter. It's still uncertain exactly where it's going to land, but what we know is that with that system, it will bring up to 150 mils of rain, but we could see falls of up to 200 mils uh, in localised areas. Just incredible. So four deaths now in New South Wales, all from Lismore. Two of them were over 80, one in his 70s and one in his 50s. Thousands of people in the Northern Rivers are still uh, cut off from basic supplies, petrol, food, water. A number of supermarkets are closed. Others have bare shelves and have introduced buying limits on essential products. The front is sort of travelling south, but still Queensland, southeast at least, is bracing for more storms um, over those flood-affected areas today. Some tough days ahead. Um, some people have lost a lot of things and uh, it is going to be uh, uh, tough with that uh, road to recovery. That's the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk. Four people have been charged with looting in Queensland. If you can believe that. I mean, who loots during mm. a horrible tragedy like this? I've got to say, I was driving in this morning, you know, at four in the morning, and thankfully the weather was clear. Mm. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, it just bucketed down. Mm. I couldn't see a single thing in front of me. I think I started going at 20 k's an hour. I don't think I've seen rain like this in Sydney this consistently. I don't know, may, maybe ever. Maybe that's my memory's I, bad, but yeah. yeah. No, that's how I feel as well. I've never seen anything like it. From way back last Tuesday, it's just been dumping so hard every day. And, yeah, I mean, the thing that's really standing out for me at the moment is, yeah, the people in Western Sydney who are right on the edge now were already pretty much traumatised last March 
And the people up around the northern rivers, it's just emerging how hard just survival is at the moment. Yeah, and when when you see the ages of the people who very sadly passed away Mm. in their 70s and in their their 80s, you're thinking there's just so many people that need help and can't get it and can't really look after themselves, and that's been one of the most harrowing things, I think, to come out of the floods. Russia's bombardment of Ukraine is intensifying. The Kremlin says it's actually taken control of Kurzon in the south of Ukraine on the Black Sea, but the Ukrainians say only the port and train station have been captured. Yeah, so Kharkiv, which is Ukraine's second largest city, has been besieged by missile strikes that have hit civil buildings, including a hospital and a university. They've killed at least 21 civilians. More than 2,000 civilians uh, in Ukraine are believed to have died since the invasion began. The southeastern city of Muropol has been under increasingly intense shelling, unable to even evacuate the wounded. Despite this, Ukraine's putting up a fierce fight. Russian mothers are losing their children in an absolute foreign country for them. Think about this number. Almost 6,000 Russian soldiers were killed. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky there. Now, he's thrown up that figure of 6,000. Russia says that that number is 498, which is very different to 6,000. It's really hard to know what the truth is and what is propaganda here. US observers say that there's a 60-kilometre-long Russian tank convoy, if you can imagine that, 60 kilometres north of Kiev, which is the capital there of Ukraine, which seems to have sort of stalled because there's food and fuel shortages Um, There's been reports of low morale in some of those units as well. Yeah, they are really interesting reports about the Russian troops really not understanding what they're there for and some of them being really shocked at the reception they've had. Um, The number of people fleeing the invasion is growing every single day. It's now estimated to be at 900,000. And the UNHCR believes it could get up to 4 million people fleeing Ukraine. Yeah, they've largely gone to um, neighbouring countries. They're trying to cross the border um, into Poland. China has ruled out imposing sanctions against Russia. We will not join such sanctions and we will keep normal economic, trade and financial exchanges with all the relevant parties. That's the chairman of the China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission, Guo Shuqing, China is one of the only global powers that has not condemned the invasion. Yeah, and further to that, overnight there was a UN General Assembly vote. Countries voted overwhelmingly to demand that Russia withdraw its troops. When I say overwhelmingly, 141 countries voted in Mm favour of that motion. Only five voted against, and they include countries like Belarus, Syria, North Korea. And there were 35 countries that abstained, including China, and India, which I think is is important for us to note. We're in a sort of what's called a quad relationship with India. And of course, we have a very important economic relationship with China. So just good to watch what's going on there. Yeah, interesting. I mean, everyone focused on China, but it's interesting to understand India's decision here too. And the US President Joe Biden has delivered his State of the Union address, slamming Vladimir Putin's invasion. He badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. As well as addressing the Ukraine crisis, Biden called for a bipartisan reset as the country emerges from the pandemic. Good luck with that. (laughs) He also outlined hopes for passing key parts of his Build Back Better agenda 
despite the fact it didn't get through the Senate. Yeah. I, it was a slightly different sort of vibe this time around from when he made this speech last year. Firstly, if you were in the room, there were more people because last year it was sort of mm. a little bit more COVID ravaged and there weren't as many people in the chamber. And there was also quite a lot of people who wore blue and yellow and that was in solidarity with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, he really had to pivot his speech there. I think if he had given it just a few weeks ago, clearly it would have been a very different mm. speech. The headline would not have been Russia and Ukraine. And I think he, according to certainly some reports, that he went off script a few times wow. and said things like, Putin, he doesn't know what's coming. That wow. was not in the teleprompter. <laughs> not in the teleprompter. How frightened would you be? Biden's tough words. <laughs> Vladimir yeah. Putin shaking in his boots. I can't I can't exactly imagine Vladimir sh- Putin shaking in his boots right now, but it's possible. Might be. Western Australia has finally brought down its border after 696 days. Fortress WA is no longer. WA has done so well throughout this pandemic and Western Australians are ready for the next phase. Yes. Good on you, WA. Come and join us. Join the rest of us. Mm. That was the premier. Mark McGowan there. There was a false start last month and was supposed to happen then. Uh, Didn't. But we know that more than 23,000 passengers are booked to travel this week on Qantas and Jetstar flights to and from Perth, people raring to cross the country. Yeah, well, Mark McGowan was over here the other week for the court case against Clive Palmer, so got a bit of a taste of, you know, the ravages of COVID that we're experiencing here in Sydney. Um, He's now worked out that it's okay It's been a funny one to watch, hasn't it? Because if you're living here, it doesn't really make sense. But I imagine if you're living there and you've lived almost restriction-free for two years, Mm. you've had to wait a bit longer. Um, You've missed a lot of people from over east, potentially your own family. But here you are coming out of the pandemic, high rates of vaccination, almost no one in hospital because of COVID. And now they're going to get on with their lives and be reconnected. Yeah. I mean, look, the the changes do come with some restrictions. Like it's not an entire free-for-all. So there's still that two square metre rule that's back in um, cafes and restaurants and, you know, things like stadiums will be at 50% capacity. So it's not not full on, but hey, it's not Fortress WA. Yeah, it's pretty much free living. And some good news for Australia's economic recovery from the COVID pandemic. It has been one of the strongest in the world, although we should note that these statistics are from the December quarter. Australia's economy is now 3.4% larger than it was at the start of the pandemic. Australia's economy has outperformed all major advanced economies, including the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, Canada, Germany, Italy and France. That's the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. So the economy grew 3.4%. Just in the December quarter, that's about a big year's annual growth Mm. in one quarter. Yeah. And look, reason being is because if you're looking at that quarter, which is October, November, December, Mm. that was sort of just after Delta, but just before Mm. Omicron. So Mm. we had come out of that. I mean, I'm talking about the sort of the big East Coast states. Mm. Um, They had come out of this sort of massive lockdown in October, thinking everything was good to go. Pulled the wallets out. Pulled the wallets out. And yeah, and that's why you see this record spike in Mm. non-essential spending, which is going out, eating, drinking, having fun. Good times, yeah. But then what happens in December, of course, or starts to happen in December, is Omicron. So it'd be very interesting to see what the March quarter looks like. I suspect it won't be as positive because people are sort of going back into their homes. Yeah, look, um, I won't put money on this. I think it'll still be a positive number, though. I don't think it'll be going backwards because it would have got smashed in January 
But once again, bouncing out in February, and you know, we're only at the start of March now, and we're almost back to normal. So I think overall, we're going to have some pretty strong growth figures. And I guess good to be reminded, and the Treasurer will love reminding us how well we've done compared to so many of those other countries. Well, he's got an election coming up, and he's got a budget coming up, and he probably wants this news to continue. All right, Jam, we'll catch you tomorrow. Um, Right now, we're going to a story from the Brisbane floods. All right, now to our briefing on what we're still getting wrong when it comes to floods. And Antoinette Latouf is here and Beck Haining's stories we're about to hear is a shocker and I think very emblematic of the bigger problems we're facing here. Yeah, well, she lives in the riverside suburb of Indrapilly and it's an old family home and it was flooded in 2011 and she didn't expect it to happen again, but it did. Sadly, she wasn't warned until it was too late. Beck, thanks so much for joining us. How badly damaged is your house? Uh, Well, it came up about halfway up the walls. It's through the entire house. The walls will have to be removed and, you know, the house will have to be gutted. The granny flat's completely destroyed. The ceiling and everything's completely fallen away from that. That's heartbreaking. And it's, you obviously had to evacuate your home and it's not just any home. It's a house that's been in your family for generations, well, 43 years in fact. How much harder does that hit? Honestly, it's a bit of an institution, old Twiggy in our family. Um, My husband was brought home there as a baby and I think that makes us more likely to sort of stand there and go down with the ship, so to speak. But I mean, this has happened twice now and my father-in-law who lives in the granny flat, I mean, he's lost everything last time and now again. So he's, yeah, he's not doing too well. So when was it flooded last time and did you expect this would happen again one day? It was flooded in 2011 and in the 74 floods. And no, we didn't expect it to happen again because we've repeatedly been told that this is a once in a lifetime event and it's now happened three times, you know, since 74. And we certainly didn't expect it to happen, you know, so quickly after we bought the house. We only bought it six months ago. So, And is that why you didn't take out insurance? Because you didn't expect it to happen again? There's a few reasons. That's one of them, yeah. And the other one is that it costs an absolute fortune to pay for insurance in that area because of what's happened before. You know, you paid 20 grand a year. It's just a risk that people take in, in those areas sometimes. So did, you, did you find that you were in a bit of a bind? A, you were told well, repeatedly that this wouldn't happen again and B, because it had happened previously, it would cost you so much more to get that insurance. Exactly right. And also last time this happened, everybody who had insurance had to wait months for the assessors and then they had to use the insurance company's builders, et cetera, et cetera. So they had to go and find places to rent and the rental market here is already completely (laughs) stuffed, you know, because of COVID. Last time they didn't have insurance either and they were able to get straight back in and start getting on with things immediately rather than waiting months and months. So we just decided that... It was better for us to follow what happened last time if it ever did happen again, but we did not expect it to. So given we're in a similar situation now to where we were in 2011, almost as many houses being flooded, do you think we've missed some massive lessons that we should have learned? I know that there's been a lot of mitigation that's happened since this happened last time, but the big thing this time was that there was absolutely no warning. And by the time 
I received a text message telling me to evacuate my house. I had already been removed by boat and was sitting on my friend's couch drinking a cup of tea after having a shower and dinner. We didn't have time to do anything last time. We had a good eight hours where we could still access the roads and remove as much as possible. So the warning system is hopeless, obviously. What else do you think we need to do better? Look, I think the flood mapping, I mean, this, this hopeless flood map, I don't know. We weren't even on the list of suburbs that needed to be on the lookout. And I kept saying to James, there's no warnings. We're not on the list. Do we need to do anything? It was just a really confusing situation. And the thing I don't understand is because it did come up so slowly, at what point do they go, we need to start telling people that this isn't going to start receding? And all of the, you know, the high tide and this number and that number, that's great. Mm. How much more do you expect it to come up? Because Mm. we're not meteorologists. We don't understand Mm. all this science speak. Just tell us, is it going to keep rising another meter? Because if it does, it's in my house. The Premier's copped a lot of flack for the messaging she's given over the last few days. What do you make of the government's handling of this situation? To be honest, I think they should probably throw the keys back in right now. I understand this is, you know, reign of biblical proportions. I completely get that. But when you're in a position of leadership and you're listening to experts and things, that's the position that you put yourself in of you are answerable to all of the people who are looking to you for that information. I feel for her in the sense that everybody is throwing stones at her personally. But what can I say? I just, I got taken out of my house in a boat. (laughs) So throw the keys in. You mean she should stand down over this? I don't think she should stand down over it, but I don't think she's going to win again. But I mean, everybody's so angry about this. I just think it's lost her the election. Right. So she's the real focus of the anger at the moment? The last thing I saw from the Premier was on Saturday afternoon at about 3.30 where they said, we are not concerned about the Brisbane River. And I took that downstairs to my father-in-law and said, look, they're saying it's fine. Don't stress. Don't worry. Wow. And then you, yeah. and then you went to bed. And then I went very to bed. Different. And woke up to someone drowning on my street. And then we had to start evacuating. And, you know, we brought everything upstairs and, yeah, and then it just escalated from there. Wow. That's crazy. So she absolutely cooked it with that messaging on Saturday. That's the thing that got me. We went out to dinner on Saturday night. We could have been getting our stuff out of our house, you know. And I heard someone say, oh, we didn't put Indrapilly on the list because... You know, there's only a few streets. And I'm like, yeah, but people live on those streets. Like, what does that even mean? Dozens of families. And and somebody drowned and died a few streets down from you, didn't they? It was actually on our back road. So someone tried to drive into the flood water. I mean, he got sucked under by the undercurrent. There was emergency vehicles, SES, police, ambulance, fire. And my father-in-law called me and said, you better come out here. And when I went outside, the water was a lot higher than it was when I went to bed. And we just went, well, we better start moving stuff. Oh, yours is such a crazy story and such an intense experience. The highlights, so many of these problems we have so clearly demonstrating that we haven't got this right yet. Like we've come such a long way with our bushfire management, but it seems like we're hopeless on floods. I think everybody's just in that mindset, I suppose, like we were as well of, you know, it's just not going to happen again. Like, because you you forget, you forget that mm. how massive it was last time and you just don't expect it. And it didn't happen since 74 to 2011. So you're mm. thinking, you know, we've got our entire lifetime to get away with this scot-free, <laughs> but no. That's Beck Haining. Just an incredible story of that series of events on Saturday being told by the Premier not to worry and then 
we all just heard what she faced after that. Um, let's go to the broader issues with Peter Gleeson. He's a veteran Brisbane journo, works for News Corp. Um, he covered the 2011 floods. Peter, thank you for joining us. What went wrong? Was it just the unpredictability of this rain bomb or were there big mistakes made? I think it was a combination of both. I think that, you know, this was a catastrophic weather event. Uh, Brisbane got two-thirds of its annual rainfall in three days. So Mother Nature's fury is unpredictable, and of course we know that. But there were very clear signs as early as Wednesday, so 72 hours before the major, major days, which was Saturday and Sunday, the Bureau of Meteorology were very clearly saying this is going to be a significant, significant rain event. And when we look at what's happened in the last week or so in Brisbane and we compare it to 2011, the lessons that should have been learnt from 2011 clearly haven't. And I think that there are a lot of people, 15,000 homes that have been impacted by this, who quite rightly pose the question of what has been learned in the last 11 years and why haven't we learnt from it? In a river city like Brisbane... Have we built too many houses in flood-prone areas or is it mostly the homes that are being impacted, those that were built pre-1974 floods? I don't think they have any alternative. You know, it's a river city. There's Mm. a lot of tributaries. There's a lot of creeks. It is what it is. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's the best and the worst thing about Brisbane. It's a beautiful river city that people live along this big snaking river and so many people live in beautiful positions, but especially with increasing severity and frequency of big weather events, as warned just again this week by the IPCC. A lot of people live in dangerous areas and, you know, can't unpack the whole city. It's a double-edged sword. You know, you've got this beautiful city where obviously the Olympics is going to be held in 2032 and the river will play a crucial role in all that. And yet, you know, when you get rain of that significance over that short period, it causes, you know, massive damage. The debris that was coming down that river during the peak times was just extraordinary. Well, yeah, it's good you point out the Olympics. We've got to resolve some of these issues by then. It could be a a real shocker if there's a flood during the Olympics. To be fair, this time round, we have a lower death toll and less carnage on home. So what has worked? Because it's important to acknowledge that and, you know, Mm. perhaps we need more of that. Brisbane's in this unfortunate position. You know, as you say, the Olympics coming up in 10 years where... You know, it is susceptible. It's very prone to these major sort of flooding events. And, you know, we just have to be more prepared. We just have to be more aware of the impacts. You know, they talk about these one in a hundred year floods. Well, we've had two one in a hundred year floods in 11 years. That was Peter Gleeson from News Corp and Sky News. I think it's just so obvious here, Antoinette, that we've got such a long way to go when it comes to flood warning systems and then possibly our emergency response. Yeah, and I think there's um, a lot to learn from bushfires. Unfortunately, it took huge devastation and a Royal Commission until we got that right. As we've mentioned, had the report this week from the IPCC reminding us that these events are going to come more often and be more severe. So we're going to have to sort this out. We can't say we haven't been warned. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going to meet the co-captain of the Australian Winter Games Paralympic team. Listener.